It's good to be here uh, to start uh, today. He said, can you come and preach? I said, sure, man, that sounds great. And originally, it was going to be out of Romans. And I was like, okay, let's get after this. Let's have fun. And then he's like, it's not Romans. Can you preach on like this topical thing? I said, that's fine. He said, it's, uh, it's going to be titled like Loving the Abuser. I said, cool. And in my mind, I thought, do you want me to cure cancer or diffuse a bomb with my eyes closed? I mean, we're about the same level of risk here going into talking about loving the abuser. So before we launch full on into this very weighty topic, I wanted to read our passage for the morning. So if you have a phone, your Bible, want to look at the screen behind me, we are going to be reading out of 1 John chapter 2. And I'm just going to read, starting in verse 7, roll through verse 14. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Okay, so we're going to hold this in our minds. Uh, the other week, just like you all, as Karen was noting, everyone's on vacations. They're going places. They're getting out of the heat. They're going to experience something else in this world. We were on our way back from Colorado from a family vacation. And while driving, I'm going to do all I can to stay awake. So I had podcasts in the earlobes, and uh, so I was listening to This American Life. Any, any This American Life fans? Okay, half the room. Literally, this half of the room. <laughs> so, um, so, fantastic podcast. They do small little stories. They're usually themed. In this particular podcast, you had three main characters, we'll say. The first character is a dirty cop, and this cop operated in Michigan, and he did his job as he saw fit. So, he would arrest people and put people away as he saw fit, maybe not what was legal, but he would do what he could to make sure people were put away if he felt like it. The other two characters, character one was an innocent person who was jailed by this dirty cop. Cop arrests the guy, uh, produces false evidence, gets the guy sent away to jail. Guy is in jail, does his time, 
at some point, I think during while he was in jail, it was found out this cop was dirty. Cop goes to jail. He serves time. Evidence proves not factual against the innocent guy, number one, and he is then released. Now, they didn't go through the timetable, so I can't explain it really well, but when innocent guy number one gets out of jail, he now needs to get a job, which everybody needs one, so he goes and he gets a job at a coffee shop. And who is his coworker but the dirty cop? The cop has now also gotten out of jail and also gotten a job, and now he's working at a coffee shop. And this guy goes and interviews at this coffee shop and then finds out the guy who is responsible to, for putting me away illegally in jail is now my coworker. And this little story, this microcosm of a story, just had a, a brief burst of popularity and lots of news programs covered it because those two guys talked about what happened. The dirty cop actually found Jesus while he was in jail. He came out a redeemed man, and then this guy, who is the innocent one, now as a co-worker, they, they talked about it. The dirty cop asked for forgiveness, and the co-worker, the innocent man, chose to forgive. He chose to forgive, and actually the two of them became good friends, and so theirs is the story of forgiveness and reconciliation. So that story got popularity. It hit national news. Local news outlets were carrying it. I think there's actually even a book coming out or is probably came out earlier this year. And uh, the story with popularity goes out and other people in the community heard about it. Other innocent people who were jailed. Other people who were abused by this cop who abused his position and put him away. And NPR sent out somebody to go and interview some of these people. And was their opinion the same? You know, I see what he did, but we're good. I'll forgive him. It's church, so I will just say the response was blank him. Blank him. I am not about to step into forgiveness of that guy. The name of this story was, you have the, the right to remain angry because it took on the viewpoint of the second guy, one of the other many people that he illegally jailed, an innocent person who gets put away. Now, this guy has also been released since then, but he doesn't have these really lovey-dovey feelings to the guy that put him away. And so we stand here and we say, you have one guy who is angry, who is bitter, who the whole point of the podcast is, it's okay to be angry and hold that grudge and bitterness because what happens if you let it go? It's like, yeah, okay, thanks for that worldly wisdom. Appreciate that, feels good. Yep, hate people, really hold on to that. So you have that viewpoint, and then you have the other guy who chose to forgive. As we sit and we listen here, we hear a story like that and we say, oh, that's really tough because we have a wrestle inside of us. The, uh, the, the forgiveness, the gracious part of our Christian side, we hear about that reconciliation. We're like, oh, that's just wonderful. Like, that's just wonderful. That's what Jesus does. I love that. 
And then there's the other side, our justice and righteousness side, that's like, I understand how the second guy feels too. I understand how he feels because he was put away illegally. And that's not right. That is not right. Where was God when that happened? And so we stand here and obviously we we love people, but we also love the justice that God instilled in us. And so we have to say, what do we do then with the abuser? In 1 John, John writes, uh, verse 9, he claims, or he writes in verse 9 and says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So what do we do with the abuser? I'm not here to solve this case of whose side are you on. That's, that's nice. That's theoretical. We're not here for theory. We're here for what does God have for us. Do we forgive? Do we hate? Do we ignore the issue? Do we try to play the middle of the road, not getting towards hate, not getting towards love, just hoping that nobody talks to us about it and we can keep moving on? What do we do with the abusers that are in our lives? I don't want this conversation, this sermon, this thought process today to be academic. I do not want this to be clinical. I don't want any of us to walk away and feel like we have some cool new anecdotes that we can pull out at a party and say, hey, I have, I have these cool thoughts. Isn't it fun to think about this? I want this to be personal. I want all of us to come to God and say, what do you have for me with this topic? In the nearness of pain, in this topic of abuse, I, I hope that we encounter the nearness and the fullness of the love of Jesus and then feel empowered to love others like he has loved us. Okay, so I want us to come and experience the nearness and the fullness of Jesus' love and then respond with that same love that Jesus has shown us. So that's where we're going. I'm just going to that's the, that's the point we're moving towards. Now let's go start back at the beginning. Before we do, you want to join me in prayer? Lord, this is not an easy topic. This is not something that is easy to parse out and just feel, okay, it's clearly this, it's not that. We all feel good about ourselves. Let's move ahead. Spirit, we need you. We need you fully and presently in this room. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for hearing all of our prayers. And even at the start, Lord, I just ask that you pour out your grace and your peace in this room. Allow us to hear from you and be protected from the lies and the attacks that might come just because we are talking about such a dangerous and serious topic. We trust you. You are good. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I've used the word abuse a few times. And so I want to make sure that we all have like a working definition at the beginning so that we move forward um, on the same page. Uh, according to Merriam-Webster, it is the improper usage or treatment of an entity often to unfairly or improperly gain benefit. 
Okay, I'll read it a little faster. The improper usage or treatment of an entity often to unfairly or improperly gain benefit. Frankly, this definition seems bland. Uh, it, it doesn't really seem to pop off the page. It doesn't carry the weight that we associate with the word abuse. Um, saying that someone just improperly used an entity to gain a benefit doesn't really just seem like, ow. Uh, abuse is rarely about the thing or the person that it is committed against. Abuse is constantly about power and control. So if we're going to talk about abuse, this improper usage of an entity for their own gain, it is almost always about power and about control. So a variety of examples of abuse that are around us. Substance abuse, usually drugs or alcohol, people who have situations that they are in and they go to these things to have control, to have power. Verbal abuse, one person knocks another person down, multiple temp pegs, constantly going at them just so that the one who is abusing verbally makes it known, I give you value and I'm going to tear away your value verbally. Same thing with emotional abuse. Emotional abuse, somebody actually sets themselves up as the one who is going to come alongside somebody to either give them joy or yank it away at the last moment and say, nope, I'm not doing that. That can be through words, but usually uh, is also with actions, constantly emotional abuse. Uh, another one that you may not have thought about often, spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse can be seen if a church or a church leader is going to tie God's favor to your doing what they tell you to do. So thus, if you are going to uh, be loved by God or know God's goodness, then you need to do A, B, and C in the perfect order, or this leader doesn't have to actually be an employed pastor or anything, but a church leader will say, well, God's not on your side if you're not doing these things. And then they hold it over you. And so God's favor is always, always out there. You're always chasing it and you're always doing things so that you can earn it. Physical abuse, we're all familiar hearing about that. One person takes over in power and lets the other person know, I control you and I'm gonna remind you through physical abuse. Um, usually in these cases, the, the person who is abused physically gets abused very badly at the beginning, but then that just the threat of that force is enough to keep somebody kind of in control. And then lastly, sexual abuse. Kids are in the room, gonna leave that one there. That's probably one of the worst and the most damaging because it is something that is wonderful that, some, that God has given to us that has been taken away, that has been stripped away. And one person does it. Again, it is not about the person. It is not about the thing. It is about control. It is about control. And so abuse comes in. Now, this is, this is fun because I this is going to get dicey. I wanted to make this personal. And this is not just informational. That's what we said. That's what I've said from the outset. And I think many of us right now are probably thinking, wow, he's hitting on some stuff that's really uncomfortable. And it's, 
it's actually easier for you to hear a sermon about abuse by leaving it clinical, by leaving it at an arm's length. Because if I don't think about that time, if I don't think about that issue, then I can kind of be present. But for many of you, it's really distant to keep it at arm's length because the topic of abuse is not a clinical thing. There's a person's face you see that comes to mind that was uh, maybe perpetrating that abuse against you at one time, against one of your family members, against one of your friends. Again, this is not a distant topic. This is near. And so when the visiting preacher gets up and he stands in front of you and says, okay, now God has called us to love one another. When we hold it at arm's length, it's really easy to nod our heads. Yes, love one another. That sounds good. But when I say, you, God is calling us to love the abuser, you say, love them? Love that person? I don't think so. I'm going to make sure Heath never brings you back. Not a chance. But I want us to be present because I understand the topic is painful. Some of you, it may not even be a past abuse you're thinking about. You might be sitting under abuse now. And so understand I want to desperately go through this text and this topic with kid gloves. And if there is pain around your heart in this moment as we are talking about this because of how you were raised, the problems in your families, the problems with some of your friends, jobs, past abuse, present abuse, bring it to Jesus in this moment and say, Lord, I am really uncomfortable. Please speak to me what you need me to hear. Okay, pray that actively as we go back into this. God sees your pain. God sees your pain. He is actively mourning what you have experienced and what you are experiencing. He is not distant. He is not separated. God is present in your pain. What does God feel toward the abused? What does God feel towards the abused? If you want to write these down, pull your phone out, take notes. I am going to hit a bunch of either stories or verse references. I did not give them to Karen because, A, I was still working at this on this like at midnight last night, and B, there are way too many. So what does God feel towards the abused? How does God respond to those who are being abused? Some stories. Genesis 21, you have Sarah and Hagar. Hagar, the servant that was given to Abraham. Abraham uh, had a child through her, but that was not what God promised. And so when Sarah got pregnant and she had Isaac, she said, Hagar, this interloper, this slave woman and her child are done. And she casts them out. She casts them out, sends them out from their house and says, get, you are not a part of this family. And what does God do? God meets Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness, in the woods, and says, 
I am going to care for you. I have heard your cry. Ishmael will also be a great nation. That's not the one that I promised Abraham, but I have heard you. I will care for you. We jump ahead the entirety of the book of Exodus. You have Israel, who is in Egypt. They have uh, been ignored and then become the slaves of the Egyptians. They have cried out to God. God has heard their cry. He has raised up a leader in Moses. And through all of the movies and stories that you have seen, frees Israel, calls them out of Egypt, and then eventually to their own land. God heard. He saw their abuse. He stepped in and he acted towards them for his favor, for his goodness. The book of Judges, it's this big cycle uh, the Old Testament can be summed up in two phrases, remember the covenant and you forgot the covenant. That's the whole Old Testament and Judges is this, this small encapsulation of that where Israel remembers what they have been promised in the Lord. They go to the Lord and then God saves them. They love him. It's great. And then they start worshiping other gods. They walk away. It all goes bad. Enemy comes and takes them. And then they cry out, Lord, we are being abused. Did you forget us? Oh yeah, we forgot you, that too. But God, we need you. Come and save us. Come and save us. God comes in and he saves them. The cycle goes again and again. The entirety of the book of Judges is God's constant response in love towards his people in saving them. First uh, and second Samuel, David, constantly abused by Saul. We see this, this rhythm of Saul abusing David and David being protected by the Lord. And, you know, Saul's abuse was not minor. He tried to just kill him a lot. So, but even in that, God came, God heard, God saved, God protected. And then... Um, in the New Testament, Matthew 19, we've got this little bit where the disciples are trying to shoo away all the children. You know, children are not this beloved thing that we like to think ours are now, um, but they were, okay, get out of our place. This is where the adults are. And uh, Jesus was there. Jesus is talking to the adults. Kids, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. This is very important. Jesus time. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let them come to me. Do not cast them out. Do not chase them away. They are not, no, they're mine. I love them. I want to bring them in. Jesus, in his love, reflects, he is God, the Father's love. God hears his people. He hears their hearts. He hears our hearts. He draws near to the abused. He is present with us and with them in the abuse. Now, many of you, are wondering, okay, that's great. I'm abused. I know that God loves the abusers. We're talking about loving these abusers. What does God think about them? What does God think about the abusers? Well, uh, there is a fantastic book by the name of Mending the Soul. Mending the Soul, written by Steve Tracy. I think the book cover, there it is, tiny, beautiful, wonderful. Uh, write that down. Pick that up. Uh, Dr. Tracy has written this book about the variety of different types of abuse, where it is, how you see it, how you heal from it. And in this book, he has this massive appendix uh, in regards to God's attitudes 
towards a variety of different abusers and the type of abuse that they are going to have. I just grabbed a section of some of these. What does God think about abuse? Psalm chapter 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things. These are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and the one who spreads strife among brothers. God is not a fan. Ezekiel chapter 18, 10 through 13. Then he may have a violent son who sheds, his, sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, he will not live. He has committed all of these abominations. He will surely be put to death. At no point in our conversation about abuse do I want it to be heard or because you see it around you and it's not yet squelched, it hasn't yet been stopped, think God doesn't care. In fact, God cares greatly. He is judging it. He sees it as wrong, and he wants to put an end to it. We have just, again, three small scriptures that I grabbed that I want to use just to represent the whole of the Bible. God is not a fan of abuse. He stands against it, and he wants us to do the same. Hold that thought. God is just, God is righteous. But what else has God also done for abuse? He paid for it on the cross. He paid for it on the cross. So grab your Bible. Just jump back a few verses we've read out of 1 John chapter 2. We started in verse 7. We'll go back to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John writes, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. When we talk about abuse... When we talk about abusers, it's very difficult to stay present because if you're anything like me, I like to think of myself in an us and them type category. Those abusers. I stand over here in the land of the holy in all that is good. But these people, these evil people, I don't want to talk about them. I'm going to talk about their judgment. That's what I want to talk about. That makes me feel better. That's, that makes me feel real good. John writes, and he uses this phrase in verse 2, that Jesus died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, he's talking about this list of sins, these list of sins that are going to keep people from heaven and I always read this passage where, where Paul's railing against these sins and saying that these should not be present and these are bad things. And you read it and you're like, yeah, 
yeah, those are bad. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. Like, no, Paul, I really liked it before when you were saying those were bad and you didn't lump me in and my actions with some of those things. When we come to a passage like this, when we talk about this, we, we have to come to grips with our own sin. We have to come to grips with the fact that we are broken and our brokenness has taken a different form. Our need for Jesus has taken a different form. And unfortunately, their brokenness, the abuser, somebody that falls into this category, it's taken that form. And it has hurt people. But Jesus has died for our sins and for theirs. He offers himself as a propitiation, taking the wrath of God for their sin and for ours. And if that was hard to believe, Jesus didn't just say, I'm dying for the people that are not that bad. He died on the cross for everybody, and then from the cross, in the moment of his abuse, in the, um, in the moment where power was wielded against him by the religious leaders, by the Roman government, they were killing him on the cross. Jesus says, in the moment of the abuse, Father, forgive them. Luke chapter 23, he comes and says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus asks for forgiveness, offers forgiveness to the abusers in the moment of abuse. If Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and such were some of you, we understand we're all coming from a place of brokenness. We're all coming from a place needing forgiveness of sin. But where are we? Okay? When we, when we approach the topic of loving the abuser, how do we approach that? Wh- who are we in that moment? Let's look back to this passage. 1 John chapter 2. Jump to verse 12. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on your, your first part of the stanzas where Paul, or Paul, where John is addressing little children, uh, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. Uh, that's probably another excellent sermon that Heath will give someday, so ask him about that. What I want to focus on is the second part of the stanza. Note that John is writing this to the believers. He says, I want you to love one another. I want you to love one another. If you are not loving one another, I don't think you're getting Jesus' message of forgiveness and love. So let let me remind you of who you are. Let me remind you of who you are. John actually started this book. The whole premise of this book, of calling people to love one another, starts with John saying, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It must start 
with Jesus. So who is God? Draw your eyes. Our discussion about loving the abuser, draw your eyes straight to Jesus. Look at him. Look at who he is. And then as we see this loving, gracious, good, amazing father, what has he done? Well, he forgave his abusers from the cross. He died to pay for sins of all mankind. And he rose again to offer us new life. This is what Jesus has done. And so then John, now I'm getting back to that, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, who are we? John addresses the believers with these phrases that these are things that have happened. These are things that we are. These are identity pieces. This has already taken place. These are not things we achieve. Verse 12, that second part, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, we stand forgiven. Because you know him who is from the beginning. You have a relationship with Jesus. You have been forgiven. And because of that, you can love one another. Because you have overcome the evil one, you have overcome the evil one. This is not something we're all hoping we get to do someday. You have, in Jesus, overcome the evil one. Because you know the Father. You can love because you know the Father. You can love because you know him who was from the beginning. Again, who is God? What has he done? And who are we in light of that? Because you are strong. This is a statement of fact. In Jesus, you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is where Jesus is coming to us. As we're talking about loving the abuser, what looks to be this insurmountable thing, loving somebody that has abused, that has hurt, that has stepped across that line, and he says, step out of the darkness. You know me. You have been empowered by me. Love like I love. You have overcome the evil one. So what do we do? Okay, start about who is God? What did he do? Who are we? And then how do we respond to who we are? Because of who he is. What do we do? Well, we do like God does. One, stand against sin. Uh, I didn't bring my coffee up because it was really, really hot at the beginning. Um, but I see that you guys do second cup coffee. A second cup exists to stand against human trafficking. Neartown Church, where I am at, we are a part of the Freedom Church Alliance, a whole bunch of churches that gather against and stand against human trafficking. What we say is, this is wrong and this is bad. So, as you see abuse happening around you, when things are not as they should be, stand against that. Please do not hear that if God is calling us to forgive, we just let everything get a pass. It doesn't get a pass. You stand against it and say, this is wrong. God hates the abuse of others. So we stand against it. That's a strong start, but we don't end there. We forgive. I had thought there was this, I had heard a story that the, about 2002, there were the Beltway snipers in D.C. that unfortunately killed a whole lot of people from like, trunks 
of cars. And it was the six weeks of not knowing if you would be safe for those in D.C. And I had heard that it was actually stopped because one of them was confronted with a woman who told them the gospel. So I went on to the interwebs, because you can find everything there, and I thought I'm going to see if this story was true. I didn't find if that part of the story was true. What I did find is uh, there was two guys who were in charge of these atrocities. Uh, one has been executed, and the other is he was underage, and so he will be forever in jail uh, until he dies, naturally. And the one who was executed, uh, a victim's brother came, and he was interviewed by this newspaper. And he said, uh, why are you here, and how are you processing this? And the guy's like, well, I'm here to see that justice was done, but I've already forgiven this guy. You've already forgiven him? Why would you forgive him? And he said, well, I got two reasons. One, God told me to. He's told me to do that, and I need to do that. And secondly, what do you say? I don't want the bitterness of what he has done to eat me from the inside out for the rest of my life. I choose to forgive. I choose to forgive. And then the second guy who's in jail, he said, look, I'm, I'm asking that you forgive me and these acts. And the reason I'm asking it Please do not hold my actions and the actions of this other gentleman, Muhammad, to hold you hostage and to continue to victimize you for the rest of your life. Do not give me and do not give him that power. Don't give me that power over you. Don't hold those actions against us. Forgive us so that we no longer have power over you. And it's in this that Jesus calls us to forgive. He calls us to love one another. And the reason being, abuse is about power. It is about one person taking power over another, and Jesus calls us to forgive. And in this, we actually give the power to Jesus. We say, you know what? You don't hold power over me. Jesus has forgiven me. I'm going to give him back the power. I am not going to be crippled under the power that you have sought to take over me. I forgive. I forgive. And then lastly, we love and we reconcile. This passage calls us to love one another, to step out of the darkness and choose to love. Here's where this gets sticky in that, let's just say you have an abuse situation. So what does that look like for you to forgive? What does that look like for you to love? How do you step forward in that? I certainly wish, because I'm somebody who likes order and things, I wish this was a really easy cookie-cutter message. And I could say, well, if you're in abuse, just do A, do B, do C. It's all good, and it will all be covered. It's not cookie-cutter, because if it were cookie-cutter, then we wouldn't need Jesus, and we wouldn't need to rely on the Holy Spirit about how to move forward in this. And so I invite you to lean into the Holy Spirit. Lean into the Holy Spirit. Pray. Go to God's Word like we have this morning. Explore some more passages. And then go to one another. 
I love that you all have, what's the official name? Are these community groups here? Is it transformation group? Transformation groups. So um, go to those, get involved with the people that God has put in your community and say, this is my situation. Bring it out of the darkness. Don't hide from it. Put it out there. This has happened to me. This is what I am struggling with. And allow people to come and care for you in it. Allow them to pray for you, to walk alongside of this with you, but then allow them also to pray with you as to say, Lord, how do I move towards forgiveness in this situation? For some people, it's forgiveness and reconciliation. Like the first innocent guy that was put in jail and he came out, works alongside the guy. He chose the route of forgiveness and reconciliation. He entered back into a relationship with him. For many of us who have gone through abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, it's, it's not always a wise thing to go back into that relationship. Forgiveness doesn't look like running back and being BFFs. So this is where kind of leaning on the Holy Spirit comes in. How can I forgive and truly forgive? Not hold this against them. Not let them have power over me. Allow the love of Jesus to come in. How can I walk away? But also not walk back to that relationship. Um, I'm referencing it. Karen will send this out. There is a book called Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Check that out. What does it look like to actually forgive and live into that? How can you be a part of that? And then, again, also not re-enter that relationship. Uh, Andy and I, Andy Don, we're, we were talking about it this week, and he said something that came to mind for him is like the book, uh, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Uh, she was in Nazi concentration camps. She was a Holocaust survivor. As she's going and talking in churches about surviving the Holocaust and all that she experienced, the guard who was responsible for her sister's death was there and came up to her. And in that moment, she froze, but she chose to forgive. She chose to forgive. They did not then go out afterwards for baklava and coffee. She forgave and then walked away. There was not a reconciliation. That was the moment. So what does that look like for you? I can't answer it, but I trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking in your heart right now. He's stirring things, and he is going to prepare you some ears and some hearts outside of yourself to help point you to that. So allow me to pray, wrap this up, and then we will join again together uh, at the table of communion. Lord, I thank you that you have at least brought us to this passage, brought us to this topic, and you have called us to love. But even in the midst of this, Lord, in a way, our hands are open, our shoulders are shrugged, and we say, Lord, we know you want something from us. I know that you want to work in and through me. I just don't know what that looks like right now. Lord, if it is just simple forgiveness, if it's needing to have a conversation, Lord, let us step into that. Give us the power to do so. Give us the strength, because we are strong in you. But Lord, if there is something that is far greater, far deeper, far more complex, Jesus, I ask that you grant us wisdom 
and surround us with people who are going to point towards you and your actions so that we reflect you in our day-to-day. Lord, as we come to the communion table, open our hearts so we see how we have been forgiven so that we can forgive, how we have been loved so that we can love. You are good, Jesus. Thank you so much. In your name we pray, amen.